If you were here last week, we started a new sermon series. We're calling it Getting Unstuck. Getting Unstuck. And as we talked about last week, I know I shared a story of places. I've been stuck before, um, got a lot of dumb stories. I've done a lot of dumb things in my life, especially before I came to know Jesus. Uh, and so I got a lot of stories I could tell you all another time. But uh, I've been stuck before, and all of us, I think, if we're to be honest, have felt stuck in different ways. And so often I think as Christians we feel stuck, we think, we think sin or whatever, but, but I think so often, you know, sin has a root to it. And so often that is discouragement or fear or insecurity, or, or, or fear of rejection, or, or isolation, or shame, or unbelief, or doubt. And if we're to be honest, all of us have felt those things before. All of us have struggled with those things. All of us have been intimidated uh, by those things before. And I, and I was thinking um, this last week about the story of David and Goliath. And I was thinking how, how Goliath felt so big, and you know, he taunted the armies of the living God, and literally out of God's people, thousands of God's people who are literally, not only being taunted, but literally operating under fear. And what they learned to do was just cope with it. They literally just learned as the people of God to cope by being intimidated and cope with intimidation and fear, and they came under it. And what happened when they were called to battle, instead of running to battle, they just lived with their coping me mechanisms and didn't stand up to the giant that wanted to face them. And then you have this, this man, David, a small man and, in a sense, a type of Jesus. But uh, David stands up. God calls him, gives him a courageous heart. And his response is, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? And God anoints him and uses him to stand up to the giant, taunting the people of God, obviously defeats him. And obviously, in a sense, that is what Jesus has done on the cross. But also, in a sense, I believe it's what God is calling us to do. In this series, we all have places where we felt taunted or discouraged or ashamed, or afraid, or shut down. And I want to say this is a sermon series where we're saying no longer. This is a sermon series in those places in our lives where we're saying no longer will this thing taunt me and bring destruction in my life. No longer will this thing in my family's life operate. Well, no longer will this thing influence me and then my kids and the next generation. I want to invite us, this be the sermon series. We face our shadow, that thing of fear or shame that we want to ignore. We face that place in our life and saying, no longer will I tolerate this because I believe the cross and the resurrection are greater. I believe that Jesus is greater and I want to put an end to this over my life and for my kids' life and everyone around me. And so I want to invite us just as we go in this series, not to just like, that was a great sermon or this is encouraging or whatever. I want to invite us to say, man, this is going to be a life-changing series. You might come to the end of the series like, man, this was complete life-changing or it might be a longer process. I want to say, process is okay. It's okay to not be okay and we want to walk that journey with you. But what matters is that we take the stance against our enemy and stand in the power of Jesus. That's what I talked about last week. I said freedom is not, a, it's not a formula, it's a person, and his name is Jesus. And what we walked through Isaiah 61 and, and what he did, and we talked about the cross and how there's power in the cross and resurrection. Um, and I've, the next coming weeks I'm going to be preaching, and I'm really excited I've got some words, and this series is going to kind of build on each other. I just want to invite you to keep coming back because it's going to build uh, on it. But I am very excited to have one of our very own, Zach Henson, bringing the word of God this week. Come on, Zach.
Zach's yeah, going to be bringing a powerful, timely word. You know, we're set free in the cross itself, and we operate like we aren't. Zach's going to really take us in today. I want to say Zach and his wife Priscilla um, live this. Uh, he'll tell you more about themselves, but they live this out. We've been blessed to have them part of our church for a couple of years now. And they live this out. Many of you guys have been blessed by their lives. And uh, I know that. Uh, and um, and, and I'm, I'm just expectant for God. I know, I know God has a word for us today. So I'm going to pray for Zach. Check, check, and check again. Are we back? Hey, um, good morning. Good morning. So I, I, uh, I just, are we, are we there? Are we still working on the mic? I'll let you work on the mic. I'll, I'll just talk for a little bit. Um, so I love, I love starting by just honoring what, what God's already done in our church. And for those of you that are new here today, um, our church was actually planted out of Waco, Texas, out of Antioch, Waco. And there's several people in this room here today who gave their whole lives. They, they left their families. They left their friends. They literally sold their houses and came here so we could be uh, in this room today. And I just want to honor those people. If you moved here from Texas, could you just stand up? Could, could, we, just, could we just pray for you real quick? All around the room. Right. Thank you. Yeah, I just, I just want to honor these guys. I mean, they, they invested in us, and it's always good to honor the, you know, the sacrifices they made. And so I'm just so stoked, so grateful, so thankful. So bless you guys. Um, and, you know, I was thinking about Texas a little bit. It's kind of, it's kind of a funny place. Um, Texas is the only state I know. Do, do you guys have my, my keynote up? Could you pull it up? Texas is the only state I know that actually serves their stakes in the shape of their state. Like, who does that, right? Like, people that love their beef so, in Texas, right? So, anyways, uh, how do you know that Adam and Eve weren't from Texas? Anybody? Because they would have left the fruit and eaten the, and eaten the snake. It's true. it's true. Texans love their meat, so. That had nothing to do with my message other than I wanted to honor the people from Texas. So anyways, now that you're all laughing, we'll get started with my struggle. That's the title of my message now. Um, we're talking on identity today. And um, like Mark shared, we're in this series on, on getting free, getting free from the things that have tormented us maybe our whole life. Um, some of the stuff we've seen, some of the stuff we're unaware of. And your identity is a huge, huge part of that. So I want to walk you through my story. Um, so my story and really understanding my identity and being challenged with my identity started freshman year. 
Um, I broke up with my girlfriend at the time, and it just shattered my world. Um, I, I didn't know who I was. I was freaking out. I didn't, I didn't know how to properly handle or process emotion. So my parents were like, well, get him a counselor. So that's what they did. Um, I went to see a counselor, and the counselor I went to see a pretty interesting guy. Um, he was actually Johnny Cash's, for those of you who know who Johnny Cash was, Johnny Cash's detox counselor. So Johnny Cash actually detoxed in his pantry. Um, this guy had himself lived a very rough life. Uh, he had robbed banks. He'd been shot robbing a bank um, and got away. So, so pretty rough guy. And here he is dealing with this little freshman who can't emotionally handle a breakup. Um, and, and the guy's not a Christian, right? He, he, he's not a believer. And he looks at me and he's like, um, I, you're a Christian, right? You, you believe in Jesus. He's like, you know, you, you told me a lot about what you're going through right now, but what about the reality of Matthew 22, 39? He's like, you, you believe this is true. You believe your scripture is true. Matthew 22, 39, second greatest commandment says, love your neighbor as yourself. And the dude owns me, right, with my own understanding of the goodness of God. He looks at me and he's like, the scripture says, love your neighbor as yourself. And he's like, Zach, do you love yourself? And in that moment, it hit me. I don't. I don't. I, I was a, at the time, I was a freshman at Chapman University. At the time, it was a top 50 business school. Um, I was in the business program. Um, I had an internship in Beverly Hills. Uh, I was on the football team. I was president of the Christian club. And it was like, by even our church standards, I was probably doing pretty well. But I couldn't look myself in the mirror and say, Zach, I love you. And this dude just rocked my whole world. I was like, I, I didn't have this realization. I don't love myself. How am I going to love my neighbor if I don't even love myself? So what I want to share with you is my story, how I answered those questions, how, how I dealt with that, how I wrestled with that. Um, one of the first things the Lord called me to is uh, he, he told me to read 1 Corinthians 13. Can you guys pull that up? 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It's not irritable, and it keeps no record of being wrong. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love, love never gives up. Love never... I love this microphone. There? Hello? Hello? Jason's going to come fix my mic. I'll keep talking. I'm totally out now. It's the worst. It's the microphone. And we're... Thank you. Woo! Now you can hear me. Awesome. Uh... Okay, you get the idea. <laughs> love is patient, love is kind. So I, I read that, and then the Lord's like, hey, don't cup the microphone. I'm still learning how to speak. Sorry, guys. There's a lot going on this morning. So love is patient, love is kind. And the Lord's working that through me. I'm reading that. And the Lord's like, Zach, you're made in my image. He's like, I'm teaching you about who you are. I want you to take that same set of scripture, and I want you to put your name there and see if it rings true. So that's what I did. I looked at the scripture. I said, Zach is patient. I was like, well, I'm pretty patient. Zach is kind. I'm, hopefully, I'm pretty kind. Zach does not envy. And I was like, 
uh, and it just went downhill from there, right? <laughs> I was like, I can't do this. I was wrecked. I was like, Lord, I'm made in your image, and I have no idea who I am. So it, it started me on a process. Um, it started me on a process of, of sitting with the Lord, and um, I, I started by writing out those scriptures. I, I wrote them out with my name, and then I kept going. So I did, you know, uh, Zach is patient, Zach is kind, and then I did, Zach, you're handsome. Zach, you're confident. Zach, you're beautiful. Zach, you're fearless. And I went through this list of, of who I wanted to be, of who I needed to define myself as. Because I realized in that moment when I couldn't get through 1 Corinthians by putting my name in the place of love, I realized in that moment that if I don't choose to define myself, the world will. I realized in that moment that my life up until that point, all the successes I had, was a culmination of those around me telling me who to be and me trying to fulfill those. I realized in that moment, if, if we don't choose to define ourselves, the, the world will. Identity means I define. It's like the word identity is an open invitation. It's like I define. Will you define yourself? It's an invitation to ask that question. I want to pose it like this. I want to pose the concept of identity like, like this. Um, everybody knows Craig Blankenship. If you're new here today, Craig Blankenship's our associate pastor. I get, to, I get to pick on him a little bit. So for those of you that know Craig, Craig is like the happiest, most loving guy to be around, right? Like that just exists within his heart. Like Craig is so full of love and kindness and compassion that it's like as soon as you come in, like it's hard to make it from those doors to your seat without being embraced by Craig's smile right? Craig is, like, totally wonderful. And, like, those are the things I think about Craig. Like, every time someone's talking about Craig, like, in my heart, I'm like, oh, I like that guy. I like how I feel when I see that guy, right? Like, when you say Craig, it's like, yes, that dude is awesome. I enjoy him. I enjoy his presence because that's who he carries. And that's how I feel about Craig. But then there's Jackie, right? How Jackie feels about Craig. I mean, come on. (laughs) right? It's like, I see Craig, and I'm like, dude, you're amazing. But Jackie sees Craig, and she's like, no, 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 no. You don't know how amazing he is, right? She's like, he's so amazing, I married him. So that every day I get to wake up to be with the most incredible man alive, because that's who Craig is to me. But then there's, there's Craig's daughters, right? And Craig's daughters see Craig, and Craig is this, like, wonderful father. There's this excitement. Craig's daughters get so excited, they physically jump into the air for him to catch them. They're that trusting of Craig. They know that Craig's faithful. They know that Craig's kind. They know that Craig's a good father, right? So we're all carrying these different definitions of Craig. But then there's how Jordan sees Craig. You see, Jordan works for Craig. That's like a totally different perspective, right? Because now Jordan's got this perspective of Craig as this hard slave-driving taskmaster who's relentless, right? Who every service has to be perfect or else Craig's foot's coming on his face. Like that's how Jordan sees Craig, right? As this guy that beats him in Mario Kart consistently. So Jordan has this totally different perspective of Craig. So when any of us hear Craig, we're all seeing different emotions, okay? If Craig were to define himself by how I see him, by how Jackie sees him, by how his daughters see him, 
Craig is left with an external definition of himself, and his character, his identity, his worldview are constantly swaying on the opinions of others. Right? Jackie may be totally in love with him and wake up in the morning and say, you're amazing. But I bet there's some times when Jackie gets frustrated with him. I bet there's some times when Jackie would say, hey, Craig, you're not patient. Hey, Craig, you're not being kind. And if Craig were to assume those identities, or God forbid, Jordan's perspective of Craig, (laughs) if Craig were to assume those, he would be swaying with the wind. He'd be swaying with people's opinions of who he is. Because his reality is being defined by other people's constantly changing impressions and opinions. That's how identity works. In the absence of one's identity, a a person is externally defined, and external definitions always bring within themselves contradiction. Contradiction is knowledge at war for dominion. The dominating knowledge will sit on the throne of a person's heart and rule an individual. Okay, so in the absence of you being willing to define yourself, you're left to external contradictions. And we're left with a problem where Jordan sees Craig as um, harsh and, and overbearing, and I see Craig as loving and kind. And so Craig is left to say, am I loving and kind or am I harsh and overbearing? Can you throw that back up? Those, those are a lot of words. In the absence of one's identity, a person is externally defined, and external definitions always bring within themselves contradictions. That contradiction is knowledge at war for dominion. The dominating knowledge will sit on the throne of a person's heart and rule an individual. If you're externally defined, whoever's screaming the loudest is what you'll believe about yourself. Whoever's causing the greatest pain is what you'll believe about yourself. If you internally define yourself with the voice of the Lord, then you'll be able to stand in any storm. That's a good word. Come on. So after reading through 1 Corinthians, and I started realizing, well, I don't know how to love myself. I don't know what love really looks like. I sat and I wrote out my definition. I put it, I put it on my bathroom mirror. Um, I put it like right in front of the toilet because I was like, if I'm going to be close to the throne, this is the holiest place in my house, and I have to know who I am. I have to know who I am. Sorry if I'm too crude today. But I, 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 I say that because I really did it. <laughs> I would sit there and I would stare at, okay, this is who I am, and I would read it over and over myself. And I started pondering, like, if Scripture says this is true, and God says this is who I am, why don't I believe it? I believe it in my head, but my heart's not convinced, right? I, I, I can answer it on a piece of paper, but every time I say it, it feels like a lie. And God started leading me to realize, oh, it's simple. It's because I have more faith in those lies about me than I do God's truth about me. I have more faith in those lies about me than I do God's truth about me. Um, you know, Bill Johnson would say, fear is faith in the wrong God. I think that's really powerful. Fear is faith in the wrong God. Fear is faith, but it's faith working against you, not towards you. It's, it's faith working to unravel you, not working to complete you. Fear is faith in the wrong God. I want to talk about lies for a minute. You, you see, lies are contracts we make with fear in order to avoid pain. Lies are contracts we make with fear in order to avoid pain. Um, here's, here's how that, that worked out in my life. 
So I would sit in front of my bathroom mirror, and I would, I would, I would read, Zach, you're handsome. And I'd go, man, that sure doesn't feel true. I really don't feel handsome. I'd say it again, Zach, you're handsome. And I'd hear in the back of my head, Zach, you're a liar. And I'm like, this doesn't make sense. Why am I believing this lie? So I'd pray about it, and then I'd, I'd say the opposite. I'd say, Zach, you're fat and you're ugly. And then I'd realize in my heart, oh, that's, that's the abusive comfort I'm used to. That's that torment I'm used to. I'd read the truth, Zach, you're handsome, and I'd feel like a liar, but then I'd say, Zach, you're fat and ugly, and it'd feel like the truth. And I'm like, this is really messed up. So what I started praying about was, okay, where did that lie enter into me? And this is how we work through these things in our identity. I'm, I'm, if you haven't got it yet, I'm calling you to define yourself. Right? I'm calling you to leave here today and write down a definition for yourself, because otherwise the world will. I'm calling you to do that. And when you're doing that, you're probably going to come across things that you're like, this, isn't, this doesn't feel true. And here's the way I worked it out. Here's the way I continue to work it out to this day. If it doesn't feel true, I identify the lie. I figure out what the lie is. So for me, it was, Zach, you're fat. And I started processing through, okay, where did that lie come into me? Where did I start believing that? Where did I make a contract with that lie in order to avoid pain? For me, it was when I was nine years old at Hometown Buffet, which is the perfect place for a fat kid. Um, I was nine years old at Hometown Buffet, and I come back with a huge plate of mashed potatoes. And my dad looks at me, and he's like, Zach, you're fat, and you need to stop eating so much. And so at that point in time, I made a contract with that lie. And my contract looked like this. It said, if I choose to believe that I'm fat, if I choose to believe that I'm ugly, if I choose to believe that I'm fat and ugly, um, fear, will you protect me from having to deal with the pain of realizing my father's broken? Fear, will you protect me from having to deal with the pain that my dad doesn't know who he is and my dad doesn't know how to love me properly? That my dad doesn't know how to disciple me and raise me in a loving manner? That my dad doesn't know how to encourage me wholly? Fear, if I believe the lie that I'm fat, will you protect me from the lie that says my dad's broken so I might be too? And I signed on the dotted line. That's how it works. So when I would look in the mirror and say, Zach, you're handsome, and the contract that said, Zach, you're fat and ugly seemed more true, it was because I made that contract, and I was using fear to protect me instead of the Lord, instead of living in the present reality of who my God is and dealing with the true pain points that were in my life. That's the process. That's how we go through dealing with our identities. That's how we go through um, overcoming these issues and getting healing in that place. If you do not choose to define yourself, the world will find a definition for you. If you do not choose to define your kids, the world will find a definition for them. Super important, right? It's so, we're, like, the whole rest of my message is on this, but it's so important for us to hear the voice of our Father. It's so important for your kids to hear from you, you're good, you're beautiful, you're wonderful, you're kind. They'll assume that identity, or they'll assume the identity their friends, the world, their teachers are telling them. If you do not choose to define yourself, the world will, and if you do not choose to define your kids, the world will find a definition for them. We have to stop finding our identity in the things we do, the people we associate with, and the decisions we make. 
say it again. We have to stop finding our identity in the things we do, the people we associate with, and the decisions we make. I'm going to walk through this one. Um, any, anyone in leadership in this room? In, in any capacity, right? Okay. Um, for those of you that have started uh, an organization that, that you're in leadership, as a leader, it's important for us to realize I am not my organization. It's really hard. It's really hard. B- because you're in this place where you're like, I'm managing this group, and that's a cons- you feel like this is a constant reflection of who I am and what I do. And it's important to make a diff. It's important to differentiate who I am from what I do, and that's what I'm trying to get at this morning. It's important to differentiate who I am from what my job is. Okay, it's important for us to leaders as leaders to differentiate ourselves from our organization. We have to stop finding our identity in the and in our organizations. So if you're a leader and you do not have a clear understanding of the difference between your church, your ministry, your organization, and yourself. You're choosing to allow your emotions to be placed in the hands of your congregants or of your customers. If you choose not to have a definition for who you are and separate who you are from what you do, you're choosing to allow your identity, your character, your worldview to be placed in the hands of those who consume what it is you do. So how they perceive your product, how they perceive your church service, how they perceive whatever it is, if you're not having a separation between I'm good, I'm loved, I'm, I'm a son of God, I'm a child of God, if you're not having a separation between that and your church, your ministry, your business, whatever it is, whenever anyone says, hey, they post a Yelp review, dude, your restaurant was terrible. Dude, that church service was horrible. You assume that identity and say, I'm terrible, I'm horrible. We have to have that. We have to have that separation of I am not my organization. So I just wanted to speak to leaders for a moment. The other problem we have is when you have no boundaries between you and your organization, if your organization dies, you feel like you die with it. If your organization dies, you feel like you die with it because you're so wrapped up in the emotions of that organization that when it perishes, you feel like it's gone and you feel like a part of you is gone. The opposite's true, too. If your organization's successful, you're left running around in circles, continuing to have that at success, because for you to say, I'm successful, your organization has to be successful. And when your organization's in that place of success, if it ever loses that place of success, you yourself assume that identity of failure as well. So you become a slave to your organization and become a slave to what you're doing instead of standing in the identity of God's called me holy, God's called me wonderful, God's called me loved. You lose your identity to the organization. Good. Okay. So now that I walked us through the process of this is how we define ourselves, this is how we work through those lies, I want to walk us through something else, and that's the understanding that we have a really good father. We, we need to know, okay, this is our definition, and where are we getting our approval to say it's okay to have that definition? Because as much as we want to deny it, that's really important to us. Approval is the seal of confidence. We need to know that we're not alone. Approval is the seal of confidence that we need to know we're not alone. Approval is like a blanket of encouragement that allows us to silence any storm. Approval works like a blanket of encouragement that allows us to silence any storm. Courage is the potential to act in a given situation. I define courage as the potential to act, the potential to do something in a given situation. I love our church here 
because we have such a strong culture of encouragement. Like, it's really difficult to get from that door to your chair and out again without someone telling you, you're awesome, you're amazing, you're incredible. Because everyone around here is seeing the goodness of God, and they're going, I want to put that greatness into you. I want to see you become the best you can. I want to see your ministry become the most successful possible. I want to see you love yourself more than anyone else. I want to see you be great. And that's, that's part of our culture here at Antioch, is it's like, I'm going to set myself aside so that you can grow. And in everything I have, I'm going to encourage you. I'm going to put that potential for greatness inside you. I'm going to give you that seal of approval you need and affirm the awesome things that are in you. I'm going to affirm your identity. And we have that as a culture. Like, I think sometimes we take it for granted because it's so amazing here. But it's important we carry that consistently into our workplace and into um, our families, into everywhere else. It's like, what if everywhere we went, we were that infectious, annoyingly happy group of people from Antioch that encouraged the socks off of everyone. Like, I love that we have that here, and let's carry it out, because we're literally changing the world through just telling people, you're amazing, and it's okay for you to be alive, and God wants to do more with you. Anyways. Okay, approval. So I'm going to hit on how important this is. Matthew 3.17. So after his baptism... Jesus comes out of the water. The heavens were open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and settling on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my dearly loved Son who brings me great joy. Dude, that's so epic, right? Check it out. So God actually says this again to him on the mountain transfiguration. He affirms this again on the mountain transfiguration. He says, This is my dearly loved Son who brings me great joy. He's like, Bam, Elijah on Mount Transfiguration, Moses with you, everybody's freaking out. And then he's like, oh, and by the way, Jesus, he brings me joy. And Jesus gets to start his ministry with that. He gets to start his ministry with this. This is my son. Jesus gets to start his ministry with that identity of he's my father. Jesus starts his ministry with knowing who his heavenly father is. He starts his ministry with the Holy Spirit descending upon him like a dove. He starts his ministry with the Holy Spirit coming over and encouraging him. The Holy Spirit coming over him and empowering him to then hear the voice of his father say, this is my son. I approve of him. I approve of him. But then the Lord does that. He does that next part. He does that something else. He says, and he brings me great joy. He brings me great joy. So I went through a season of life for some time where um, it was right after my first son was born. And I, I had taken a break from work. And so I had the night shift or part of the night shift on taking care of our beautiful newborn baby. And the Lord just impressed on my heart. I, I started questioning with, Lord, why did you create me? Like, why do I exist? And so I started going through the things I know, and I was like, okay, Lord, if, if, I exist just to, if I exist to fulfill the Great Commission, then, like, I'm going out, and it's like my whole perspective is let's get as many people saved as possible. And I'm totally for that. Yes, let's get as many people saved as possible. But if my whole identity, if my purpose for existence was the Lord created me to get more people saved, and the Lord created more people to get more people saved, and da 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 I started realizing, wow, like, am did the Lord just, like, make me to go do, to fulfill a mistake that Adam and Eve caused that somehow I was a part of that I don't really understand? 
Like, did he just make me to be a problem and he was going to work with me to fix the problem? But he already fixed the problem with Jesus. Anyways, I just, you know, I got, I got all messed up on these questions. Like, Lord, why then do I exist? Why then do I exist? And I feel pretty good about this. Uh, for those of you who know uh, who N.T. Wright is, um, N.T. Wright's a, a theologian. He's pretty popular today. And um, he was on a hike with his grandson. His eight-year-old grandson said, um, Grandpa, you know, what's the meaning of life? And his kids are with him, and they're like, all right, what's the great theologian going to say? And he responds, I don't know. I need to think about that one. So it made me feel a little better. <laughs> but I'm still in that process, and I want to share with you what, what the Lord impressed upon me in that season. I started realizing I had a pretty skewed perspective of God. If I think he made me just to do things, Right? I started thinking through faith, like, okay, without faith, it's impossible to please God, but then it later says, like, faith is something he gives me, like, faith is something he empowers me to have, so how does that work? Like, he literally provides the faith to which he's going to take great joy in. That's wonderful, that's awesome, that's off of me, but Lord, why, like, why was I created? So I, I started going through this, and I realized I had a pretty skewed perspective of who God is. And I, I came across sayings from people like Athanasius. Um, if you don't know who Athanasius is, he's one of our early church fathers. He's, he's the man who fought the hardest to have the reality of the Trinity still um, in our doctrine. Um, Athanasius is pretty incredible, and he said this. He said, the God of all is good and supremely noble by nature. Therefore, he is the lover of the human race. And for some reason, that hit me so hard. That hit me that one of our early church fathers, right, that, that close in time to the apostles, that close in time to Jesus, had that reality every day of his life, that the God of all is good and extremely noble by nature. Therefore, he is the lover of the human race. So I, I came to this conclusion. Um, he loves me. He loves me. I, I had that reality there. It still didn't answer my question, but it started me on that journey. My dad, every day when he would drop us off uh, at school, my dad would say, glorify God today. And during this time, I started thinking about that. When my dad would drop us off at school, I would think, okay, how do I glorify God? Through our words, our actions, and our attitude. <laughs> Sorry, if you've been in kids' ministry, that's, that's, our, that's our deal. Uh, now, how do, you, how do you glorify God? How do I glorify God? How do I make God any brighter than he already is? How do I glorify God? And I'm going to answer this. I'm not saying, I mean, there's, there's many things you do that are wonderful and magnify and are worship to God, and it's incredible. But Lord, like, what can I do? Who can I be? Like, how do I, how do I glorify you? He, um, Hebrews 11.6 says, without faith it's impossible to please God. I talked about this. And then, John 14, 15, 23, Jesus says, if you love me, obey my commandments. So I started pondering on that one. Like, do I glorify God by obeying more of his commandments? And that was a really tough season because it became about following rules and me thinking, okay, the more I follow rules, the more my God's happy, the more I'm serving him, the more he's, he's pleasant towards me. And I, I, I started realizing how skewed this is. And in, in following rules, when you follow rules for rules' sake, we're following them because we're afraid of their consequences, not because we see the reward of their wisdom. 
when we follow rules for rules' sake, we're following them because we're afraid of their consequences, not because we see the reward of their wisdom. And that hit me pretty hard. I was like, Lord, okay, it's not about following rules. It's not about having enough faith, which you give me or don't give me or I'm deciding. Like, that's not it. That's, that's not why you created me. Like, those are all wonderful things, but that's not why he created me. At the end of the day, it left me going, okay, I have to do a lot of stuff to please God. I had this perspective of God that in my head, I really had to do a lot of stuff to please him. So um, I have a video I'm going to show you, and then I'm going to explain it. This video is kind of interesting. This video is on how idols are made. So can we, can we get that up? So this is how iron idols are made. Metal idols. They melt down the metal. He pours it into a um, mold. Takes out the mold. Bangs it around a little bit. You got to turn over your idols. When you're making your idols, make sure you touch them. They could be hot. So he's got a golden idol. This is how clay idols, they made a clay idol. And so when they make the idol, I mean, it's a lot of intricate work. It takes a lot of planning to make these idols. Um, There's a lot of detail that goes into it, right? They want to make sure they get every nick and cranny of their idol. Because if you're making an idol, you want it to look good. So they're, they're, making, they're making their idols. They're painting their idols. Lastly, um, okay, he's still painting his clay idol. Yep, uh-huh, looks good. Okay, definitely too long on this video. Okay, you can just, you can just cut it. The next one's a wood idol. You get, you get the idea. And what I want to show you Um, or what I wanted to illustrate with that, is as I'm working through all these perspectives of who I am, or of of who God is, and trying to deal with who I am, and I started realizing my God, the God in my head, really wanted me to do a lot of things, really wanted me to, to perform. And I started realizing I've got two different gods living inside my head. I want to show you this video, I wanted to show you this video on how idols are made to realize Idols are actually made the same way today as they were thousands of years ago, or as they're presently being made in India. Idols are made between your ears. To make those idols, they first have to imagine what the idol is going to look like. They have to imagine what the idol is going to be in charge of. They have to imagine how to worship it. They have to set procedures. They're going to go through the process of, of painting it and making it look pretty. Idols were made the same way thousands of years ago as they are today. We make them in our heads. Here's what some of your idols might look like. The perfect church ministry. That perfect job. The one that's unmatchable. For for someone, for a few others, um, it could look like I'm single and I want to be married and there's this perfect picture of who I want to be with in my head. That idol may even have a name of someone in the room. And you're engraving over and over again how this perfect person looks like and how they'll treat you for the rest of your life. You're engraving. You're you're making them pretty. You're putting on makeup to say, no, 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 this idol's really there. It, It really exists. It's beautiful. And I can only tell you, like, if that's you today, when you're with that person, and maybe you did, maybe you even married that person, you're gonna come up with consistent conflict because you're going to constantly be trying to change that image of the person you see here with the image of the person you see here. 
because you've been spending your time, your energy, trying to carve in this person that doesn't exist. And so you'll enter into a relationship with that individual and you'll continue trying to carve them out instead of loving them who they are, where they are, as they are. Idols are made the same way thousands of years ago as they are today. It gets a little scarier. Um, Ezekiel 14, 3 through 5, says, Son of man, these men have set up idols in their hearts and put before them that which causes them to sin. Speak to them and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, everyone who sets up his idols in his heart and puts before him what causes him to sin and then comes to a prophet, I will answer him according to the multitude of his idols, that I may seize him by his heart because he is distant from me by his idols. What begins to happen is as we engrave this perspective of God in our minds, as we engrave this other alternate God, as we engrave these other alternate idols and set them up in our hearts, that scripture says God will actually answer you according to those idols so that you come to the realization that those idols are not worth serving. So you come to the realization that everything that comes to them will lead to an end, will will totally destroy your life, right? You may even be getting dreams about that individual or dreams about that organization, and the Lord is leading you onto a path to realize that's not him. It's, it's really painful. Um, the Lord spoke to me a while back. He said, be careful not to let hope prophesy what faith hasn't sanctified. Be careful not to let hope prophesy what faith hasn't sanctified. And here's what that looks like. God's put something in your heart, and he's leading you on a journey. And he wants to open that door of your heart. And he opens the first step, and you start on the path, and you're so excited. You're like, thank you, God. Finally, the door is open. But then you keep running, and he goes, wait, let me, let me do the process. And you start creating this own process. You start justifying with hope what faith hasn't yet sanctified. You start hoping, God, you open this door, so you're going to open the next one. You start investing. You start running. And you're like, God, why are you against me? And he's like, I never was. But I'm back at this place. I'm back at this first door I ever opened, and I want your heart to be in the position of waiting. I want you to let me do the process instead of you seeing you accomplish the process. Be careful not to let hope prophesy what faith hasn't sanctified. (sighs) Good. So many of us exist here today with two gods in our head, and I want to walk through how how we get there. Um, I realize I'm over time, so I'm going to wrap it up. Ooh, I'm like halfway through my message, so this will end quickly. I'm going to wrap it up. Wrap it up with two things. So Genesis 1, we don't have time to go through the verse. Sorry, not Genesis 1, Genesis 3. Um, When Adam and Eve are in the garden, the first thing the serpent says to Eve is, did God say? The first thing Satan tries to do is challenge Eve's communication with God. He tries to implant this lie in her that says, you didn't hear God, and my voice is what you should be listening to. Satan tries to come in and set, him, set himself up in that place as their father, as, as, the, as that voice identifying who they are and what they should be, as that challenging voice. It's the first thing Satan does, right, before ever convincing them to eat of the tree. He challenges their ability to hear God. He comes in and he says, listen to my voice instead. This is true. What your father said is not true. In fact, let me give you a picture of God that says he's holding you back. He's restraining things from you. You'll actually be better when you eat the tree than you are now. 
That's what Satan tries to do. He tries to come in and say, make a contract with my lies. Make a contract with my fear. And if you believe in my lie, then you won't have to deal with the fear that God might be holding something back from you. Because he's not. Satan tries to come in and sit in that place of your father. I'm going to end with this story. Um, There was a young girl named Abby. Abby was three years old. And her dad was awesome. He, he loved spending time with her. He loved playing with her. And he bought her this bicycle, or tricycle. Bought her this tricycle. And when Abby and her dad were out running around, her dad would just have the biggest smile seeing that tricycle, seeing her daughter. And one day he's like, you know what? She's so good at this. I'm going enter to enter her into a race. So he puts her in the cutest race for three-year-olds, right? Three-year-olds on their trikes, like cuteness exploding everywhere. And Abby wins, and she sees her dad's smile. And she gets off the bike, and her dad picks her up, and he's got the biggest smile on his face. And she felt her father's approval. So a few years later, her dad was in an accident, um, and it, it caused his back to be in a lot of pain. He started medicating it, um, and unfortunately, he, he was stuck to the couch pretty much. And through a combination of, of the pain pills and everything else, he became bitter. Um, Abby would ride her bike in the room, and he would yell at her, what are you doing with that in the house? She would make projects for him, and he started snapping back, like, I, I don't have time for this. It's like, you're sitting on the couch. And so little Abby started craving that same approval her father had, her father gave her. So she decided, okay, I'm going to be the best at everything I can be. Perfect scores in elementary school. Perfect scores in middle school. In high school, same thing, right? Perfect grades all the way through. Captain of every team, right? She, she missed her prom because she was studying for the SATs. Every sacrifice she could make. And finally, the day came. Finally, the day came. It's the end of her senior year. And she gets her report card at school. And a sticker's on the bottom of it that says valedictorian. She'd done it. She was the best in her class. She was ready for any college she was going to want to go to. And she's so excited. She packs her bag as soon as the bell rings, and she runs home, doesn't talk to any of her friends. She books at home. She gets home, opens the door, and sees her dad there on the couch. And all of a sudden, all the achievements, all the accomplishments, everything she had done, all the things she'd overcome to get there, they fade away, and she's that three-year-old girl walking up to her dad. And she flashes back to that memory of her dad's face smiling so big. And she walks up to her dad with her report card in her hand. It says valedictorian. And her dad turns to look at her and he knocks over a cup of coffee. It spills right on his lap and he screams. And he looks at her and he's like, why do you always make mistakes? And in that moment, she shut down. She drops her report card on the ground. And from that moment forward, she formed two gods in her head. She was a Christian. She knew there's a loving God. She could answer it on a textbook. She knew there's a God who's always good towards me. But the reality was, as much as she knew that in her head, she didn't know it in her heart because she still lived out of the perspective that her father was disappointed with her and she could never do enough to receive his approval. I'm asking us today, Mark's going to come up and, and do, a, do a response time, but I'm asking us today, I'm asking us to repent. Like, 
you, you may be saved. You may have received Jesus. That's awesome. This isn't, this, what I'm calling us to today is not about salvation. Like, I hope you're saved. If you don't know Jesus, like, this is the place to be. Turn to the person next to you. Like, we love God. Turn to the person next to you. Find out what that love is for yourself. Find out what that love is for yourself. Ask them, come, there's going to be people praying. Come, come be a part of that. But what I'm asking us today is if we need to repent because there's this God that makes us do stuff in our head. There's this God that even though we've done so much says you haven't done enough. If there's that voice that's living there where Satan's trying to sit in and say you're not enough, you need to do more, you need to do X, Y, Z for your father's approval, I'm calling us to repent of that today. If you have to do something to be loved, that's not what our Heavenly Father's about. He's saying, I love you because I love you because I love you. My hope for you today is that you've seen a great loving God who's so alive in me. And what I, the realization I came to when I was going, Lord, what's, what's the meaning? Like, why did you create me? I looked at my son sitting in that crib whose poopy diapers I would change and get my hands covered in, who would cry constantly. But when he would give us the biggest smile, I realized the only thing in life I really, really would want from him the only thing that would like really bring me joy is if he enjoyed who I was too. And so my charge to us today is this. Do you enjoy God? Has he shown you as faithful, as loving, as kind, as enjoyable, as fun to hang out with? My charge to us today is this. Like, let's enjoy God. Let's enjoy him every day. And if your God that you see isn't enjoyable, I want you to find the same loving, perfect, beautiful, holy, righteous, noble God that I know. And I want you to experience that joy too. We're going to have people praying for you. Um, Come get prayer.